I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, Episode 40, The Right of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality and the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, Volume 1, pages 18 to 26. And after that, a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Concerning the practice of educative pederasty in ancient Sparta, we have conflicting historical reports. Plutarch said that by the early age of 12 or 13, a Spartan youth had chosen a male mentor and lover. The great Greek general and writer Xenophon, 430-355 to B.C., on the other hand, hailed chaste man-boy relationships. However, he did vote... He did note that certain Spartan pedagogic rationalizations were used as an excuse for men to approach good-looking boys under the guise of a show of friendship and virtue, and it also helped cover their sense of shame and fear of punishment that they would take pleasure in the seduction and sexual molestation of the young. Xenophon held that men seek to keep shameful, illicit, homosexual love secret. In contrast, honorable, chaste love is public, not hidden, and many know and approve of it, including the family of the boy. I think I ought to say something also about intimacy with boys, since this matter also has a bearing on education. In other Greek states, for instance, among the Boeotians, man and boy live together like married people. Elsewhere, among the Ilians, for example, consent is won by means of favors. Some, on the other hand, entirely forbid suitors to talk with boys. The customs instituted by Lycurgus were opposed to all of these. If someone, being himself an honest man, admired a boy's soul and tried to make of him an ideal friend without reproach and to associate with him, he approved and believed in the excellence of this kind of training. But it was, if it was clear that the attraction lay in the boy's outward beauty, he banned the connection, sick as an abomination, and thus he caused lovers to abstain from boys, no less than parents abstain from sexual intercourse with their children and brothers and sisters with each other. Xenophon Minor Works, Constitution of the Lacedaemonians. Since Sparta was a closed and secretive society, and since we cannot know what went on behind closed doors or under cloaks drawn about male lovers, it is unlikely that we will ever know the extent of homosexual pederasty in the city-state. We do, however, know considerably more about the institutionalized practice of adult homosexuality in Spartan military life. From the earlier description of Spartan life, it would appear that adult homosexuality would have had a difficult time in establishing itself in such an austere and conservative society. However, we must also consider the fact that, having exploited every facet of Spartan life to ensure maximum military preparedness and troop morale and loyalty, the state was not above exploiting homosexual relations when it served their purpose. 
Greek tradition did not permit camp followers, and soldiers were often separated from their wives for long periods of time. Adult homosexual relations helped fill the sexual gap, providing sexual release and variety, but again with the usual caveats. Manly homosexual bonding was encouraged so long as it did not interfere with normal conjugal life. Also, the senior partner in the relationship was expected to play the dominant role in cases involving anal penetration of his younger lover. Furthermore, overt displays of effeminacy indicating possible gender tampering were strictly forbidden. In the Boeotian city of Thebes, the final outpost of Greek freedom, a similar military homosexual ethos existed, but unlike the Spartans, the pairing of homosexual lovers in battle were part of Theban military organization. No one, even the most cowardly, would want to be shamed on the battlefield before the eyes of one's lover. It was the legendary Theban sacred band or sacred brotherhood composed of 300 paired elite troops that met Philip II of Macedonia and his son Alexander at the Battle of Cyrenia and fought bravely every man to the death. That historians should recall and honor such valor is not so much a tribute to homosexuality, but rather a simple and universal acknowledgement that a soldier's courage and devotion to his nation is praiseworthy whenever and wherever it is found. Greek homosexuality, a complex picture. What conclusions can we draw, then, about homosexual practices in ancient Greece? Perhaps David Cohen, in Law, Sexuality, and Society, The Enforcement of Morals in Classical Athens, summarized it best when he wrote, In Classical Athens, the community judged individuals who engaged in homosexual relations, homosexual prostitution, or adultery in accordance with a matrix of legal rules and social norms, expectations, and values, which, were, which was characterized by the contradiction ambivalence, and ambiguity. Was homosexuality common everywhere? The answer is no. We know that in many parts of Ionia and elsewhere, homosexuality in its various forms met with intense public disapproval. Further, even where homosexuality was integrated into a pedagogical Athens or militaristic Sparta, Thebes state system, it was rigidly circumscribed by custom and the law. What is was it common among all classes of Greek society? Outside the artificially induced social environments of the porni in the gymnasia or the gymnasia or military barracks, there is no evidence that suggests that homosexuality was an integral part of Greek society, especially among the middle and lower classes where the sexes were more normally integrated on a day-to-day -day basis. Was it common at all periods of Greek history? Again, the answer is no. We find no common homosexual, we find no homosexual reference in Homeric times or before the late archaic period. Homosexuality in its different forms was associated specifically with the golden age of Athens and the military states of Sparta and Thebes. It was not until the dawn of the Hellenistic age, 330 to 30 BC, Following the Roman invasion and dissolution of Greek city-states, of Greek city-state system, that we see a marked return to a more normal pattern of family life, 
reminiscent of earlier periods of Greek history and a rise in the status of women, and new emphasis on the value of marriage and conjugal relations. It seems strange, does it not, that ancient Greece, which was dying from her depopulating habits of infanticide, inbreeding, and incessant fratricidal warfare, was given a new lease on life by her Roman conquerors. With this enforced opening up to the outside world, homosexual practices no doubt continued to intrude into Greek life, but the context in which they played themselves out had radically changed. The Early Roman View Prior to the creation of the Roman Republic 200 to 118 BC, it is highly unlikely that the early rural populations of Rome who were attempting to master the soil and sink domestic roots had either the time, inclination, or opportunity for the luxury of sexual deviancy that marked later periods of the nation's history. These early Romans were characteristically a practical people, not geared toward the intellectualization or spiritualization of sex or any other aspect of everyday life. Romans did not meditate, they acted. The personal sense of a will to power of the freeborn Roman male citizen was manifested in the cult of manliness and held in precarious check by an ingrained sense of stoic asceticism. The early Roman family system was marked by close-knit family ties, a respect for women as wives, mothers, and lovers, a fairly normal integration of the sexes, and an educational system whereby fathers acted as the primary educators of their own sons, factors that mitigated against institutionalized pederasty. In terms of same-sex relations and religious practices, according to Otto Kiefer, author of Sexual Life in Ancient Rome, the early Roman sexual deities were intrinsically related always to the sexual functions of women or to love between a man and a woman. The Romans did not have an equivalent of a narcissist or a hermaphroditos, Cupid, the son of Venus and Mercury, and the Roman god of love. Unlike Eros, the Greek god of erotic love was not tainted by any connection to same-sex desires. Sex was inextricably tied to fertility and procreation, although the Romans were knowledgeable concerning homosexual practices, which they referred to, not surprisingly, as Greek licentiousness. Romans stereotyped the defeated Greeks as cunning, effeminate, and degenerate. Homosexuality and, the, and Societal Sexual Dissolution It was not until the early years of the Republic that homosexuality in its various forms began to get a strong hold on Roman society. This rise in homosexual practices corresponded to a deterioration of family life and public and private morals and a decline in and corruption of traditional religion set against a wider social backdrop of continuing political, financial, military, agrarian, and economic chaos and instability. The arrival in Rome of foreigners from Greece and the Far East who brought with them foreign religions and foreign deities, many with prominent same-sex rights, contributed to an increase of exposure of the general populace to homosexual behaviors. Mithras, the soldier god of life, the sun and fertility, 
whose worship included the rite of the bath in the blood of a bull, took on homosexual overtones and became very popular with Roman legions, with the Roman legions. The worship of Dionysus, who became Bacchus, was said to be connected to homosexual debauchery and murder. The corruption of the great mother cult was reflected in the worship of the goddess Cybele, whose high priests were known to castrate themselves, dress like women, and take on men as lovers. Sexual deviancy among many of the Roman emperors was accelerated by contact of the imperial court with these eastern religious cults. The massive influx of foreign slaves who were either prisoners of war or purchased abroad by wealthy Romans and who under Roman rule of Eos Sacrum were permitted to keep and practice their religious rites was a contributing factor to the above phenomenon. The increased use of slaves as domestic servants also had a profound effect on Roman family life, both among the old Roman aristocracy as well as the new old Riche. Many of the responsibilities of the patrician father and mother were now assumed by Siroi, serving, including the tutoring of young freeborn boys and the use of wet nurses for Roman matrons. More slaves meant more leisure time for wealthy urban Romans of both sexes, and in increased and an increased taste for luxurious living, including the freedom to indulge in and a greater toleration for sexual excesses and deviations. In this growing sexually charged atmosphere of increased sexual license, it is not surprising that there should appear on the Roman scene a version of the proverbial effeminate queen known as Cynidus, a Latin word of Greek origin, which signified an effeminate male who enjoyed being anally penetrated, sodomized, by another male. The Latin term muliebria pati indicated that a male penetrated by another male was said to be having a woman's experience. To be on the receiving end of an act of sodomy or fellatio was considered by a Roman to be a disgrace of the first magnitude. Whether or not the Senatus was exclusively homosexual, we do not know. He may have had extracurricular, extracurricular other sexual liaisons with women or young boys. Nor can we be sure of the degree to which monetary or other less tangible rewards, such as upward political mobility in the imperial court, influenced his behavior. We are also left with scant information as to what degree his same-sex activity intruded upon Roman society's rigid class distinctions, although it is unlikely that this was a consideration as long as the Senatus was not a freeborn Roman adult youth, adult or youth. It, it is also unclear uh, if the Senati were viewed by Roman society or by themselves to be a separate entity from the common class of male prostitutes who plied their wares on the streets of Rome. All we know for certain is that there existed in Imperial Rome a group of adult effeminate men, Senati, who appeared to have preferred the role of catamite passive role in same-sex relationships and who adopted a dress 
and mannerisms designed to attract male partners. The Senatus wore distinguishing clothing that marked him as a passive homosexual, clothing that was short, soft, revealing, and seductive. He adorned his person with perfume and jewelry, wore lavish makeup, and depilated his body, including both the pubic area and buttocks. He adapted effeminate bodily gestures, including the batting of his eyelashes and the mincing gait, practice incessus. The popular literature of the day frequently connected the Senati to certain occupations such as temple dancers and hurduls and to actors and mimes in the Roman theater. It was also alleged that they had a special means of communicating their identity to other Senati and to potential clients. One of these signals was the scratching of their curly-topped head with one finger. Naturally, the outrageous and unmanly antics of the effeminate Senati provided an open-ended reservoir of material for the Roman satirists and critics of imperial Rome. In Satyricon, a marvelous satire on ordinary Roman life written about 61 AD and first printed in 1664, Gaius Petronius, Nero's ill-fated advisor to matters of luxury and extravagance, captured the essence of the petty rivalries and pet jealous sentimentalities that characterized homosexual affairs in his day. The Roman poet and epigrammatist, Marshal of Spanish birth, heaped coals of scorn and ridicule upon the heads of secret effeminates. And in early and in typical early Latin, coarse and vulgar but always direct, the poet Catullus of Verona was who was said to have dabbled with both hexes, threatens two homosexuals saying, I'll blow you and bugger you, pathic Aurelius and fairy furios. Homosexuality in the imperial court. The degree to which family life and public and private morals had fallen by the time of the founding of the empire by the Caesar Augustus in 27 BC is captured in the blistering 16 satires of the Roman general Decimus Junius Juvenalis, 55 to 127 AD, who appeared to have who appeared to save his most venomous attacks for the imperial courts of Nero, 54 to 68 AD, and Domitian, 81 to 96 AD, and Hadrian, 117 to 138 AD. In Satire 1, the Roman Empire, Juvenal asked, What age so large a crop of vices bore, or when was avarice extended more? He listed sodomy as but one of a catalog of vices that had infected the upper classes and were steadily seeping downward to all levels of Roman society. Apparently, the androgynous-looking Senatus was not the only homosexual type on the Jew- on the Roman scene, because in his satire, too, more or less without morals, Juvenal claimed that some rough, taciturn-looking Stoics were practicing homosexuals. What sweet, what street is not overflowing with those glum-looking queers? You rail at foul practices, do you, when you're the ditch where they dig, the Socratic buggering perverts, hairy parts to be sure, and arms 
all covered with bristles. Promise a sweet, promise a rough, tough guy, but the pile doctor smiles, he knows better, seeing that smooth behind prepared for the operation. Juvenile also attacked men who entered into same-sex marriages, an obvious reference to the Emperor Nero, who followed in the path of his sadistic and incestuous father Caligula, pursued every sexual whim, natural or unnatural, including two marriages, one to the boy Sporus, whom Nero had castrated, thus rendering him a girl, complete with veil and full wedding nuptials, the second to his freeman, Doriferous. And while the Emperor Hadrian did not attempt to marry his Antinous, he did command that following the drowning of his young lover in the river Nile, Antinous be raised to the status of a god and worshipped with all the reverences and honors shown to a Roman deity. In Juvenile Satire 9, the reader encounters a pitiable, a pitiable homosexual prostitute named Nebulus, who not only plays the dominant role, dominant and active role, to the wealthy Catamite Vero, but also sires Vero's children with Vero's wife to enable the old man to keep up appearances. The poor Nebulus complains that sodomy is hard work and says that he would rather plow the master's field than his person. Vero, on the other hand, is fearful of possible scandal or blackmail and was not above having his former male whore assassinated. Juvenile assures Nibulus that he will never be out of a job in Rome. Juvenile's friend, Marshall, whose own tastes were rumored to be along pederastic lines, was equally effective in his poetic barbs against the growing effeminacy of Roman men and those freeborn citizens who depilate their buttocks. But for whom, he asked. The great Roman historian of the second century A.D., Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, in his biographies of the twelve Caesars, from Julius Caesar to Domitian, related a catalog of astounding psychosexual disease in which homosexuality was but one of the psychopathic characters. The exception was Claudius. And while it is true that no emperor was an exclusive homosexual and none attempted to hide behind verbal euphemisms in order to rationalize their devout deviant acts as the Greeks did, nevertheless their sexual behavior was marked by an increase increasing degree of cruelty and sadism that was never characteristic of the Hellenistic tradition. Did the Romans consider homosexuality natural? In a 1979 address to a dignity convention titled The Church and the Homosexual, an Historical Perspective, the popular homosexualist apologist John Boswell stated that the Romans were indifferent to questions of gender and gender orientation, and Roman law and social strictures made absolutely no restrictions on the basis of gender. Boswell claimed there was absolutely no conscious effort on anyone's part in the Roman world, in the world in which Christianity was born, to claim that homosexuality was abnormal or undesirable. He rejected the notion that gay men were told to be less masculine 
or inferior to straight men. And even it was Christianity and not the Romans who that gave homosexuality a bad rap, he charged. Unfortunately for Boswell, even under the most superficial scrutiny, his statements on Roman indifferentism to homoerotic activities and his assertion that the Romans viewed homosexuality as being neither abnormal or undesirable, this mixing, his mixing of sexual gender and sexual identity metaphors, notwithstanding, cannot be sustained. It is true that under the Republic and the Empire, same-sex relations were both permitted and tolerated, if not approved of, by certain segments of Roman society, especially the ruling class, but only if certain class and gender prescriptions were vigorously adhered to. Roman citizens were still expected to marry and produce at least one male heir. Further, the norm by which their sexual behaviors were measured remained fundamentally unchanged. Sexual intercourse involved the act of phallic penetration by the viewer, a freeborn adult, of a female, wife, lover, slave, or prostitute, or in terms of same-sex relations, the oral and anal or anal penetration of a male inferior, that is a slave, ex-slave, non-citizen, or prostitute who played the passive, that is the role of a woman. Roman laws such as the Lex Scafultinia, Scafultinia enacted at the beginning of the Republic, which specifically prohibited the debauchment of underage male citizens and Roman matrons, and not only remained in effect, but were expanded and eventually served as the basis for anti-homosexual legislation in the Christian era. An adult who raped or sexually seduced a freeborn male, child, or youth was severely punished. In homosexual acts involving two adult citizens, the partner taking the passive role could be prosecuted. Roman law continued to hold the body of the freeborn Roman citizen or youth to be inviolate against phallic penetration by another male. For a freeborn male to willingly permit himself to be penetrated by another male was considered a disgrace, and he was liable under the law. Not only the act, but even the desire for such an experience was considered unmanly and deserving of public censure. And certainly, law or no law, the effeminate Senatus was considered a degenerate and was a consistent object of public ridicule. It was not uncommon for young men, especially in the latter days of the empire, when sexual attacks upon Roman citizens of both sexes became more common, to wear amulets around their neck to indicate their freeborn status and, by implication, their legal immunity from phallic penetration. This was particularly important when entering the public baths, as these facilities had become notorious for attracting senati and predatory homosexual males. For the freeborn male, the only thing worse than being raped anally was to be raped in the mouth. Certainly, none of these considerations cited above indicate that the Romans, as Boswell asserts, were indifferent to sexual gender roles or to homosexual acts, including sodomy or fellatio. As for his statement that no one in the Roman world into which Christianity was born made a conscious claim that homosexuality was abnormal or undesirable, one has only to read 
Boswell's own chapter on ancient Rome and Christianity's social tolerance and homosexuality to know this statement is false. Meaning for today, to the question of what contemporary relevance is all this controversy over the ancient Roman or Greek view toward homosexuality and homosexual practices, I respond, very relevant, if for no other reason than prominent homosexual advocates like Boswell obviously consider it so. One need only examine the testimony given in the state of Colorado Supreme Court case of Evans versus Romer to understand that what the ancients believed regarding concerning the morality of homosexual acts is still of import today. Popularly known as the Colorado Amendment 2 case, it had its beginnings when the citizens of Colorado voted in a statewide referendum in 1992 to amend the state constitution to repeal various municipal ordinances that had been enacted to prohibit discrimination on the basis of homosexual, lesbian, or bisexual orientation, conduct, practices, or relationships. The gay lobby immediately challenged the constitutionality of Amendment 2 before the State Supreme Court of Colorado. One of the expert witnesses for the prosecution was Martha Nussbaum, then professor of philosophy, classics, and comparative literature at Brown University and now at the University of Chicago. Along Boswellian lines, Nussbaum testified that neither the pre-Christian civilizations of Greece and Rome nor the major philosophical traditions associated with them, i.e. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, had any moral objections to homosexual behavior. It was not until Christianity appeared on the scene that homosexuality was condemned as being contrary to natural law and the natural common good, she claimed. All moral objections to homosexual acts are inherently theological, she asserted. Her underlying assumption was clear. Laws that discriminate against homosexuals and or homosexual behaviors are unconstitutional in that they violate the constitutional prohibition of laws respecting the establishment of religion. Nussbaum's testimony, given under oath, was challenged by John Finnis, professor of law and legal philosophy at Oxford University, and by Robert P. George, associate professor of politics at Princeton University. Professor George later wrote a scathing commentary on Nussbaum's testimony entitled, titled, Shameless Acts Revisited, Some Questions from Martha Nussbaum. According to George, Professor Finnis accused Professor Nussbaum of what amounted to a series of misrepresentations, distortions, and deceptions, and a willful falsifying of not only the positions of Plato and Aristotle, but also of modern commentators on Greek philosophy and public morality, such as Kenneth Dover, A.W. Price, and Gregory Vlastos, as well as her own published works. George noted that when Nussbaum was cross-witnessed by the state attorney defending Amendment 2, if Kenneth Dover, author of Greek Homosexuality, had concluded that Socrates, among others, condemned homosexual conduct, she unequivocally replied, no. This despite the fact that Kenneth Dover, on page 160 
quite clearly state that both Socrates and Plato condemned homosexual copulation as such, and not just pederastic seduction or special cases involving bribery and prostitution, as Nussbaum claimed. George reported that Professor Nussbaum also claimed that Plato's Laws, Book 1, 636c, appears to contain a condemnation of homosexual conduct only because translators under the influence of Christianity imported prejudices against homosexuality into their translations. However, this is not true. As George commented, virtually all known translations of the passage in Laws 636c not only describe homosexual acts as parapusin, that is, unnatural or contrary to nature, but a crime of the first rank. George correctly concluded that it, the, the condemnation of homosexuality by Greek philosophers, as represented by Plato, is substantially in line with the Catholic tradition we are about to explore in depth. And now a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Chapter 3, I Believe in the Holy Spirit, 683. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This knowledge of faith is possible only in the Holy Spirit. To be in touch with Christ, we must first have been touched by the Holy Spirit. He comes to meet us and kindles faith in us. By virtue of our baptism, the first sacrament of the faith, the Holy Spirit and the Church communicates to us intimately and personally the life that originates in the Father and is offered to us in the Son. Baptism gives us the grace of new birth in God, the Father, through His Son, in the Holy Spirit, for those who bear God's Spirit are led to the Word, that is, to the Son, and the Son presents them to the Father, and the Father confers incor incorruptibility on them, and it is impossible to see God's Son without the Spirit, and no one can approach the Father without the Son, for the knowledge of the Father is the Son, and the knowledge of God's Son is obtained through the Holy Spirit. 684. Through us, through His grace, the Holy Spirit is the first to awaken faith in us and to communicate to us the new life, which is to know the Father and the one whom He has sent, Jesus Christ. But the Spirit is the last of the persons of the Holy Trinity to be revealed. St. Gregory of Nazianzus, the theologian, explains this progression in terms of the pedagogy of divine condescension. The Old Testament proclaimed the Father clearly, but the Son more obscurely. The New Testament revealed the Son and gave us a glimpse of the divinity of the Spirit. Now the Spirit dwells among us and grants us a clearer vision of Himself. It was not prudent when the divinity of the Father had not yet been confessed to proclaim the Son openly, and when the divinity of the Son was not yet admitted to add the Holy Spirit as an extra burden, to speak somewhat daringly. By advancing and progressing from glory to glory, the light of the Trinity will shine in ever more brilliant rays. 685. To believe in the Holy Spirit is to profess that the Holy Spirit is one of the persons of the Holy Trinity, consubstantial with the Father and the Son. 
with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. For this reason, the divine mystery of the Holy Spirit was already treated in the context of Trinitarian theology. Here, however, we have to do with the Holy Spirit only in the divine economy. 686. The Holy Spirit is at work with the Father and the Son from the beginning to the completion of the plan for our salvation. But to these end times, ushered in by the Son's redeeming incarnation, the Spirit is revealed and given, recognized and welcomed as a person. Now this can this divine plan, accomplishing Christ, the firstborn and head of the new creation, be embodied in mankind by the outpouring of the Spirit, as the Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Article 8, I Believe in the Holy Spirit. 687. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now God's Spirit, who reveals God, makes known to us Christ, His Word, His living utterance. But the Spirit does not speak of Himself. The Spirit who has spoken through the prophets makes clear makes us hear the Father's word, but we do not hear the Spirit himself. We know him only in the movement by which he reveals the word to us and disposes us to welcome him in, the faith, in faith. The Spirit of truth who unveils Christ to us will not speak on his own. Such properly divine self-effacement explains why the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him while those who believe in Christ know the Spirit because he dwells with them. 688, the church, a communion living in the faith of the apostles, which she transmits, is the place where we know the Holy Spirit. In the scriptures he inspired, in the tradition to which the church fathers are always timely witnesses, in the church's magisterium, which he assists, and the sacramental liturgy through its words and symbols, in which the Holy Spirit puts us into communion with Christ, in prayer wherein he intercedes for us, in the charisms and ministries by which the church is built up, in the signs of apostolic and missionary life, in the witness of saints through whom he manifests his holiness and continues the work of salvation. One, the joint mission of the Son and the Spirit. 689. The one whom the Father has sent into our hearts, the Spirit of his Son, is truly God, consubstantial with the Father and the Son. The Spirit is inseparable from them, in both the inner life of the Trinity and his gift of love for the world. In adoring the Holy Spirit, in adoring the Holy Trinity, life-giving, consubstantial, and indivisible, the Church's faith also professes the distinction of persons. When the Father sends his word, he always sends his breath. In their joint mission, the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct but inseparable. To be sure, it is Christ who has seen the visible image of the invisible God, but it is the Spirit who reveals him. 690. Jesus is Christ, anointed because the Spirit is his anointing, and everything that occurs from the Incarnation on derives from his fullness. When Christ is fully glorified, he can in turn send the Spirit from his place with the Father to those who believe in him. He communicates to them his glory, that is, the Holy Spirit who glorifies him. From that time on, this joint mission will be manifested and the children adopted 
by the Father in the body of his Son. The mission of the Spirit of adoption is to unite them to Christ and make them live in him. The notion of anointing suggests that there is no distance between the Son and the Spirit. Indeed, just as between the surface of the body and the anointing with oil, neither reason nor sensation recognizes any intermediary, so the contact of the Son with the Spirit is immediate, so that anyone who would make contact with the Son by faith must first encounter the oil by contact. In fact, there is no part that is not covered by the Holy Spirit. That is why the confession of the Son's Lordship is made in the Holy Spirit by those who receive him, and the, the Spirit coming from all sides to those who approach the Son in faith. And this is all my reading now from the Catechism and from the Rite of Sodomy. And so I'll conclude my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God, may God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.